Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 170 of the first volume, if you're following along in the text. And we're starting with number two. And if you remember, we're, we're in Hypothesis 21, and we've just gone through uh, Hypothesis 20 on uh, the re revelation of one's thoughts to one's elder. That to let go of shame and the experience of embar embarrassment when we fall into sin or when we are struggling with certain thoughts and to bring those things to the light freely and to allow uh, one's elder or confessor to apply a kind of healing balm there by giving us specific counsel, encouragement in the spiritual life. And uh, this uh, hypothesis that we're looking at now, 21, as I've mentioned in the past, is intimately linked with the previous one in, uh, in that it tells us that this is not to be done with anyone, that one is to be discriminating and discerning in uh, who you would reveal your thoughts to, and uh, to find an elder who has wisdom, experience, and is going to give good counsel. And in general, this is a good thing to think about, that we would spend a great deal of time uh, finding a spiritual director or someone that we seek spiritual counsel from, uh, because uh, typically the, the counsel that comes to us throughout the whole of the spiritual tradition, not just the Desert Fathers, is not to move around between one spiritual director and another, that we want to have a kind of stability developed there over the course of time so that the, the elder knows us well and can apply counsel over the course of time. And sometimes we don't make spiritual gains if we are flitting from one director to another, we'll always remain on the surface of things and or find ourselves repeating the things that we struggle with rather than uh, getting into, you know, onto a deeper level of the spiritual struggle. Uh, but tonight uh, we're going to go into this very fully, not, not only in terms of being discerning about who we uh, reveal our thoughts to, uh, but what if the, the thoughts at times are uh, contrary at different times or di different gu guidance or counsel that they give? And, uh, and how it is that we discern whether or not one it would be a good elder for us to, to, to listen to? And, uh, or what if the advice is, and we're given examples if it's bad and uh, how to respond to it. So again, we're on 170, number two. An elder tells us of a monk who once fell to serious sin. His conscience, however, reproached him and he repented. So he went to con confess to an elder. Because of his shame, however, he did not mention the act, but only his temptation to do it. That is, he, he told the elder, Father, I was troubled by this thought. Is there salvation for me? However, the spiritual father who heard his, this confession, since he was not experienced and lacked spiritual discretion, said to the sinful monk, you have lost your soul. As soon as the brother heard this, he said to himself, as long as I've lost my soul, I may as well go back to the world. As he was leaving, however, he thought to go to Abbasiloan, who was known for the gift of discretion and confess his thoughts to him. But on going to Abbasiloan's cell, he did not confess his sinful act to him either, but confessed only his sinful thought as he had done with the previous elder. 
Abbasilawan, after he had heard the monk, opened his mouth and began to tell him that according to the Holy Scriptures, there is no condemnation for those who sin only with their thoughts. When the sinful brother heard this, he took strength in his soul and encouraged by the hope of salvation, revealed to the elder his sinful act also. And so here we're already presented with the uh, example of a spiritual elder who has no discretion. You know, at the mere mention of the uh, sinful thought, even though the monk did not reveal fully what he was struggling with and the act tied to it, uh, the counsel that is given is not only poor counsel and destructive, but not consistent with what uh, he was saying that he was struggling with. And uh, when he goes to Abbasilouan, who did have discretion, Abbasilouan sort of helps him make that movement to being able to articulate fully what he was struggling with. And so after he, he calms the monk, and encouraging him saying, simply by, by being besieged by sinful thoughts does not mean that one has sinned. The thoughts can come upon us as we've often talked about in a, a, a great wave and be relentless throughout the course of an entire day. But that does not necessarily mean that one has committed any sin, especially if we've struggled with the thoughts and haven't given ourselves over to them. Uh, and yet being discerning, uh, you know, I think he, allow, he allows him through this gentle counsel then to have the freedom from the shame of acknowledging the act itself. And once he's able to do this, he experiences great healing. And so we're given a good example here of uh, a monk who's very holy and, and, and uh, has the gift of discernment and one who lacks it altogether. Uh, so one is able to see, you know, the struggle that the, the monk was having and does not shame him for not revealing the whole of it all at once and instead helps him to work through that feeling of shame and embarrassment until he's able to have the courage to acknowledge it fully. He, he did have the spirit of repentance, which is already something powerful in and of itself, if we, as we saw at the first, in the first uh, pages of, of this volume that the turning to God, the acknowledgement of one's sin, even within the heart brings a flood of grace. It was only his shame and embarrassment that was holding him back from experiencing the fullness of freedom and healing. And the gentleness of Silouan allows him to do that. And we'll hear again and again throughout this hypothesis about how important that is, that the, there is to be a kind of tenderness in the elder, and never shaming, uh, but always gently guiding someone forward and, uh, and not seeing even the struggle or the sin as apart from himself, that there is such a love for those in uh, their care that they would take upon themselves the penances, but they would see the struggle as belonging to them as well, that there was a bond between uh, those who would come to them and, and a bond of love that did not allow the elders to see their spiritual struggle as something separate. And I think that, you know, certainly in seminary, I wish we had read more along these lines because uh, we're not meant to be uh, simply 
sacramental machines, you know, uninvolved and untouched by the, the struggles and the experiences of those that we serve. And uh, confession can be become like that. You know, a priest can sit in the confessional and uh, simply perform the act and, and offer the absolution, but not necessarily offer any counsel, comfort, or, or, or guidance that is a kind of healing balm that is needed in a given moment. And in fact, they could give the wrong counsel altogether if, if they've so removed themselves from the other. Okay. So after Abba Silouan, uh offers this counsel and uh, he, he turns his attention certainly to the, the Abba who had given the poor counsel. After the elder had also learned the brother's deed, like a skilled and experienced doctor, he molded the monk's soul with the teachings of the Holy Scripture, showing him that there is repentance for those who willingly return to God. After this instance, incident, my Abba visited Abba Silon, from whom he heard the story of the repentant brother. Now this monk, who had lost hope for himself and was about to return to the world, came to be like a bright star among the brothers. I'm telling you these things, observed the elder, so that we might learn that there is great danger in entrusting one's thoughts to persons without experience and spiritual discretion. So if we, we think about the, the first elder's response, uh, that there is great danger in entrusting uh, our thoughts and our spiritual struggles to anyone. And we know from, as we've mentioned before, Teresa of Avila's life, that she received great harm uh, within the course of spiritual direction, that she was undergoing certain things in the spiritual life, having certain experiences. And the counsel that she was given so often did not help her, but in, in fact made things worse for her or more confusing. And, uh, and so, uh, the warning here is that we ourselves have to be discerning as much as that's possible, not simply to jump, as we will hear, to individuals because they look wise or because they have a white long beard or because they're elderly. Uh, uh, and we have to discern with, uh, within them a kind of experiential knowledge and a certain bearing that they have that shows us that they, they've walked this path themselves. Okay. Any thoughts on this first little section tonight? Pretty clear, I think, for the, the most part. Okay. So letter B from St. Ephraim the Syrian. My brother, take care if someone should confess his thoughts to you, lest you be troubled by these thoughts during the time in which he is relating them. And indeed, if your mind's eye should weaken a bit, you will then be like a captain who encounters a great tempest. Thus, as soon as you hear the essentials of what someone is confessing, you should infer from these the rest and then proceed to comfort the troubled person, drawing on all that we have received from holy men or on what we know by experience. It is not the will of the Lord that one person should be destroyed by the sin of another, for the Lord wishes that all should be saved. So discretion on the part of, of an elder means also understanding uh, that he needs to guard his own heart as well, that if he is going to be responsible for the care of souls 
and listening to their struggles is to be discerning enough to uh, say, okay, that, that is enough. You've communicated enough for me to know what you are struggling with, that there isn't uh, the necessity to go into minute details, in other words. And uh, this is a good thing if you're going to confession, certainly to know that. The priest needs to know enough uh, to understand what it is that you're talking about. But uh, you don't have to go into every single detail of a particular sin. Uh, but the priest also has to guard and watch his own heart, realizing that as a human being and subject to the struggle with the passions, that he doesn't want to allow what he hears to affect his own heart. And, uh, and so this can be a, a tricky thing to do, certainly, and requires a kind of, of discretion that the, the priest is... Uh, able to, to listen deeply and uh, be able to discern what's going on without going further than necessary. And this is true even for those who have, you know, uh, I think a, a depth of knowledge and discretion and even can move in the midst of hearing those things uh, without being affected by them. They, but they cannot be foolhardy in the practice of thinking that they are impervious. And so they have to kind of have a kind of wisdom and humility there. David Robles. Did you have a question or a comment? Or is it what you typed here? He breaks down uh, from us, for us, from the philokalia that uh, temptation is broken down. We've talked about this a number of times, provocation, momentary disturbance, communion, coupling, a sense, prepossession, and passion. And so there's this kind of movement within the soul uh, where we are provoked uh, by a thought, an idea, a temptation is put before us, and we'll experience then a kind of momentary disturbance within the heart. Uh, we'll become aware that we have lost our internal peace and stillness, and the heart becomes agitated, and then communion, where we engage the, the particular thought directly and perhaps hold it in, a in our minds. And then assent, where we accept it into our mind, in our heart freely, and allow ourselves to entertain it on a deeper level. Prepossession is that you know, we've gone along uh, fully with that for a period of time, Passion is when it has become habitual, where we are giving ourselves over to it and have done so over a course of time that the immediate approach of such a, a thing that would provoke us to sin moves us towards the embrace of it very quickly. And understanding this, uh, how one reaches this communion with sin becomes very important because it tells us that we, we, we want to begin the battle as soon as there is a provocation there. And I think in our society in particular, that we are, uh, you know, we are constantly uh, confronted with so many things that stimulate the, the mind and the heart. And, uh, you know, not only through social media, but so many different sources, and that we can be very indiscreet about that in the sense that we, we don't gravitate towards stillness and silence. That as Christian men and women, we should 
love silence and love stillness because it's what we are seeking to create within our hearts in order that our, our minds and our hearts might be inseparable from God. And so when we are constantly filling the mind and the heart and the imagination with thoughts or music or images, then gradually we lose that internal stillness and we become more vulnerable then. When there's a multiplicity of thoughts, when our imagination is full of different things, it becomes much more difficult to move away. The further we get down this line, especially to ascent and prepossession, we, we become more and more vulnerable and it's hard to turn things back once we find ourselves in the grip of a particular thought or temptation. So striking off the head of the serpent, the moment that we see it becomes very important because once the serpent's head is in the door, basically the battle is lost for us. Anthony. Anthony writes, how do these stages of sin correlate to the Roman distinctions between imperfections, venial sins and mortal sins? Or is, it, is that too big of a topic or a harmful focus on what evil within us instead of a focus on what is good, noble, et cetera? Uh, Wayne, we are on page two seven one seventy one. Uh, it's not. It, it is a little big for here, and you know I think we see similar things within Western writings. Uh, if uh, Cassian, Cassian. Cassian, who brings us the uh, writings of the Eastern Fathers on the eight vices, uh, is a wonderful resource for us. But we find similar things within the West uh, the, on the capital sins. And uh, similarly, how they manifest themselves uh, in, in our lives, and then what are the remedies for them? And so we, we do find similar things with a uh, few differences in, and distinctions made, uh, but it's helpful. And even the distinction between venial and mortal sins can be helpful too, in the sense of being able to acknowledge the gravity of certain things, the fullness of our uh, intention and, and knowledge of what it is that we're doing and, and free will. Uh, but uh, I think what we're looking at here is, is certainly sufficient. Uh, if others want me, would like me to direct them to some of the Western writings, I'd be glad, glad to do that uh, uh, because I think they're both helpful. In fact, I have some pretty good handouts. Maybe once we get the website put up, I have uh, a talk that I did on the capital sins, and I'll make that available and we'll get that up on, on the website. Okay. All right. So, so, second paragraph. But you also, my beloved, must not reveal your thoughts to just anyone, but only to those whom you know to be spiritual, taking no note of their appearance or whether their hair, the hair of their head, or beard is white. For there are many who have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And, you know, this was often our Lord's critique of the scribes and the Pharisees, that objectively, at least on the surface, they led very holy lives. They certainly kept to the law, uh, and they looked the part, and they, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, and had much of it uh, memorized, but it didn't necessarily mean that they were in a right relationship with God or leading a God-pleasing life, that there was still a kind of pride within them, a contempt 
for, as it were, the hoi polloi, you know, especially those uh, who worked in the fields and could not possibly keep all the, the minute prescriptions that had sort of surrounded the law uh, that they had added to, to it. And they looked down often upon individuals who were, were unable to attend to these things or did not attend to them. And we sort of pick up little hints of it where uh, they criticize Jesus and his apostles for not washing their hands before they eat or plucking uh, bits of corn or, or, or wheat as they walk through uh, the fields uh, that in a sense that on a Sabbath day that that would be considered work rather than providing for nutrition for themselves. And so we see in them a kind of harshness, uh, uh, a strictness that led them to judge others uh, uh, in uh, at times almost a very mean-spirited way. And often they tried to trip our Lord up in this regard or to uh, tear him down in the face of others because he did not follow these particular codes that had amassed around the law. And so we, we aren't to look at appearances, uh, but we are to look to the heart and look, look again to a person's demeanor, their stillness, their simplicity, their humility, whether or not they lived a life of obedience, uh, the gentleness that they have, all of these things speak to us of the action of the spirit in their life, but also that they are living the gospel in a very deep fashion. And so it's not always going to be the most eloquent individual who's going to be the best uh, spiritual counselor or give the best uh, guidance in the spiritual life. Might be a simple, humble priest within the con confessional that gives a, has the best insight into our, our particular struggles. For this reason, our Savior counseled us, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Uh, and we, we live in a day and a time, unfortunately, where this has uh, come to light in a very painful way. You know, certainly there have been those who have been the, the victims of, of ravening wolves and also have been the victims of a kind of inattentiveness and unwillingness to, to draw all these things to the light and allowed the position uh, of those who are given the care of souls to be abused uh, over the course of generations to the harm of many souls and certainly to the church as a whole. We must not then pay attention to external appearances for the enemy has many traps. We must examine only the thoughts of each person, the way each one thinks. From all those in whom you find the fruits of the spirit, Hide not your thoughts so that the enemy will not chance to find a crack and, and having made his way through it, pull you slowly astray into corruption. So he, he brings this back again and again to, to Paul here and also to the, the scriptures in terms of the negative fruits. But uh, Paul to the Galatians uh, about that they show within themselves the fruits of, of the spirit. And again, these are those that we would want to gravitate towards or be the things that we would be looking for, uh, because we might be attracted to certain individuals that stimulate the mind and the intellect, you know, and the way that they talk about the spiritual life. 
And not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think someone who can articulate the faith well and the spiritual life well uh, is a good thing, uh, but uh, it isn't meant simply to be entertaining. You know, I think we, there should be manifest within it a kind of simplicity, uh, gentleness, again, humility, spirit of obedience that we, we hear within the words themselves and how these things are articulated. And, uh, you know, there is a kind of aggressiveness in our day, uh, you know, even in the expression of the faith. Uh, and we often will imitate the world in this regard, you know, in terms of how things are stated. And I often will post a, a, a quote from, uh, I think it's uh, uh, Shmeiman, who, who talks about that the gospel should never be proclaimed with power in the way that we see within the world, that we are proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so how that shapes the way that we bear witness to the gospel, how we proclaim it is important, that nobody's forced into the faith or can be forced into the faith. And so how we speak to them about our experience of Christ or the salvation that comes through him or uh, the, the joy, the freedom that life in Christ brings should always be reflective of the heart of Christ. And uh, if they're in other words, you know, we can't be spiritual bullies uh, and use the faith as, as a way of arguing a person into submission. Uh, that bears no fruit. In fact, it can bear the opposite. Uh, I think when we're, we're found simply to be confrontational about our faith. Again, take care, my brother, lest having heard the faults of your brother, you reproach him in your heart for having happened to commit such a great sin. Rather, you should marvel at your brother's repentance and at his open confession. Indeed, for someone to reveal his faults voluntarily to spiritual men indicates a restoration of life, the fear of God, faith, and humility. And so the position of the one who's responsible for care of souls or the confessor, the elder, is to marvel at, at the faith of a person who so loves God, so desires God, is willing in humility to freely acknowledge their sin before another. And this is what should, what we as, 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 as priests and those with the care of others uh, should see and admire in others that spirit of humility, that spirit of repentance, this is what has the greatest value for us. And even as Christians, I think we can look to the exterior qualities of an, another. Again, their particular gifts and talents, wealth, any number of things, uh, and, and not necessarily see the greatest of things within them, uh, which as we've heard in this volume over and over again is repentance. You know, this desire and this willingness to turn the mind and the heart back to God and to trust in his mercy. But this is the great virtue for us because it immediately it brings upon us the love and the mercy of God. Any thoughts or comments on any of this so far?
For this reason alone, you should marvel at your brother and comfort him with humility, keeping in mind the apostolic injunction, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And remember as well that which God said through the mouth of the prophet Ezekiel, therefore thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day that he erreth, and the iniquity of the iniquitous shall not harm him in the day that he turneth from his iniquity. Neither shall the righteous, uh, righteous be able to be saved in the day that he sinneth. So in all of this, you know, it's not another's virtue or their qualities that are going to save us nor is it their iniquity, is their iniquity going to pull us down? Uh, you know, what is most important is that we, when we fall in sin, are able to turn back to, to God with humility and repentance. And for those who have the care of souls, you know, how they help others to do that is to be doing it themselves constantly. Now, how is it you guide and direct another to do that if this is not something that you do at every moment of your own life? Then, you know, I think a person's counsel at that, that point becomes suspect. And I think most people would see and realize that as well when it does not ring true and doesn't speak to the heart. Okay, from Abba Isaiah. If you ask an elder to counsel you concerning your thoughts, you should openly speak your mind before him and also freely confess your thoughts, as long as you know for certain that he can be trusted to keep your words in confidence. If certain brothers happen to talk to you about thoughts against which you also battle, do not agree to hear them so that these thoughts will not provoke warfare within you. So two very similar counsels there, you know, being sure before you open your mouth that an individual can be trusted, that they're worthy of the confidence that you're placing within them. And trust is a precious thing. And once it is lost, it is often lost for good. Uh, but it is to be, and every priest that I know holds that to be a precious gift. Uh, where individuals over the course of time have been willing to re reveal the things that they struggle with uh, to them, that it is held to be something that is cherished and to be protected. And uh, so when we are looking for so someone, we, we want to be sure that this is true within them, that they are trustworthy. And again, I think you can pick this up uh, by the things they say and how they say them, and even in their, I think, in their slowness to speak or their slowness to correct others, you know, that there is not this desire to put themselves forward or to treat the, the things that others say or, or talk about in a, a rough, in a rough fashion, that there is a kind of respect and gentleness with which they treat the things that others give to them. So it's not even confidences. I think it's when people are talking about various aspects of the faith and are asking questions about it, that those questions are received in a kind of way where there's no desire to uh, be condescending to another 
or, or to make them feel you know, inadequate in terms of their understanding of the faith or the spiritual life. You know, all of these things, I think, that reveal the heart of an elder. Any comments or questions? All right. And again, do not agree. You know, this is a tough thing in our, our day. You know, everybody uses Facebook as the public confessional. And if people want to make public confessions, we should just do it, you know, within the context of the church if they want to go back to that. But uh, I think, you know, there is this vulnerability that people surprisingly fall into. And I don't know if it's the lack of having, you know, a, a place or good counsel or experience within their own life. But uh, now there is this need, I think, to lay out one's life fully for everyone to see, you know, to uh, become vulnerable before thousands. And uh, one of the prophets says, you know, have many acquaintances, but one in a thousand as a confidant. And we need to sort of move back to this uh, kind of understanding that we don't reveal the deepest thoughts of our hearts or things about our relationship with God or our struggles with everybody that we meet. And we certainly don't do that in a public forum for a number of reasons. I think certainly because that makes, you know, we are becoming vulnerable, uh, opening our minds and our hearts to people that we do not know. But we also then become vulnerable to the evil one to have what we say be manipulated uh, either by others in terms of how they respond to it or manipulated by the evil one himself, by the kinds of temptations then that are put before us to draw us away from, from, our God, from our Lord. If a brother considers you trustworthy and confides his faults to you, take care not to tell them to anyone since this will be the death to you. If you question the elders about your thoughts, do not wait until after you have committed the misdeed to ask them, but clearly tell them what is bothering you at the moment. Be careful not to be a hypocrite and to, and to say one thing instead of another, or perchance to present things that you have done as though they were the deeds of a third party. Tell the truth and be prepared so that with willingness you will perform whatever is appointed to you. You can fool yourself in various ways, but not the elders whom you consult. Well, so, so much in this one paragraph, and so you might want to highlight this one. Uh, so take care to tell no one about any, anything that has been told to you. And that goes for all of us, uh, that we don't share confidences with other people. And, uh, and Isaiah tells us, since this will be death to you, that again, we have to treat the confidences other, of others as precious and not to be treated indiscriminately. Uh, the second counsel is a very good one. Do not wait until after you've committed the dis misdeed to ask for counsel. So, you know, I, I think, you know, Anthony brought up the question about the distinction between venial and mortal sin. And I think this sort of takes us back there in a way, because often 
Western Christians are taught that, you know, venial sin doesn't necessarily have to be, one doesn't necessarily have to go to confession for it. But there is a value in doing so, because when we find ourselves embattled and, and struggling, that the grace of the sacrament, it's a healing sacrament, but the grace that we receive through the sacrament can strengthen us in that battle with thoughts that are besieging us, or if we find ourselves being drawn along further and communing with it and giving a certain level of assent to it, perhaps we've not committed the deed. But what we're being told here is that we don't want to wait, that there's a value of being able to acknowledge that before one's elder in order to receive counsel, encouragement, specific advice, certain forms of penance that will strengthen us in the battle, what's needed for the particular thoughts that perhaps are attacking us at that moment. And uh, so going to confession regularly is a good thing for that reason, or simply speaking with one's spiritual director or confessor, even outside of the confessional can be something that really does strengthen us for the spiritual battle. Uh, be careful not to be a hypocrite and to say one thing instead of another, or to present things as though you've done them or they were done by a third party. And this is also a temptation too, to try to rationalize in such a way that we would put forward our sins uh, as a hypothetical uh, and that this is something that somebody else has done. And so we put it forward as a question, what should I do or how should I manage this or how should a, a person who's struggling with this deal with this in their life when in fact it is our struggle. And so uh, we're not going to fool God, certainly, and we're not going to fool the spiritual elder either if he does have a certain kind of discernment. So right from the beginning, we want to have this kind of freedom to lay things out fully, all of it on the table, in order that the light of Christ might shine upon it and that we might have a kind of clarity. When we hold back like that in the confessional, or as we've heard in so many stories, and we'll hear them coming up, how we can, again, acknowledge a struggle going on, but hold back and talking about the specific deed because we find some shame in it. We, we, we prevent ourselves from coming to know the healing that God desires to give us. And certainly that an elder would want to comfort us uh, in, in terms of helping us let go of the shame of it and take hold of, of the path that brings us to healing. When you ask an elder about warfare, do not yield to the thoughts which speak to you from within, but to the words of the elder. At the outset, beseech God saying, be merciful unto me and enlighten my spiritual fathers that they may tell me those things which are necessary. And that which the fathers appoint to you, carry it out with faith and God will give you rest. If you are weak and fall into the passions, do not let anyone tell you his impassioned thoughts as if you were strong uh, and in invulnerable, for this deed will be the ruination of your soul. Do not reveal your thoughts to everyone so as not to be a scandal to your fathers and so that the grace of God might cover you. So a number of different things here in this particular section. I think the most important is, I thought at least, was praying for one's spiritual fathers, that they might be able to offer the counsel that God desires 
and that will be truly healing. Uh, that we don't treat them as magicians or that we aren't putting them to the test in the sense of testing their, their, their spiritual knowledge or their ability uh, to understand what is going on with us. We, we want to be as transparent as we can and laying things forward, but we also want to be praying for them that God would inspire and guide them as they, they counsel us. Okay, Josie. Is there a difference between the evil one hearing the confession of our thoughts in private versus public? Can't he hear them in both cases? Sorry, sent by accent. That's okay. Uh, good question. And, you know, it's come up often. And I think what is seen uh, is, you know, our, our indiscreet speaking of thing, these things to others. Uh, there is something about the grace of the sacrament. And I think also of that relationship that exists between an elder and those in his care, that, but in particular in the sacrament that is protecting to the soul. I think what the fathers have in mind though, is that when we are verbalizing, not only the particular things that we struggle with, but what we are doing in the spiritual life, that if we're telling everybody what we're doing or what we're engaging in or the things that are happening in our spiritual life, we open our, ourselves up to the attacks of the evil one, that we can be drawn into pride through it. Or if we're revealing in this casual and an indiscriminate way, the specific spiritual exercises that our, our elder told us to do or that we read about then and perhaps didn't seek uh, the, the counsel of an elder, then we become open to the attacks of the evil one. Uh, the sacrament, I think, is a, a graced moment for us, and that the priest not only protects through confidentiality, but God protects himself through, through the grace that he provides. Anthony. The protection of the mind is maybe the really important problem with social media. As one mindlessly absorbs, one tunes into so many different minds, putting themselves out for consumption. It's more indiscriminate than TV since you can get so many channels one right after another. Yes, you know, I think that's true, you know, that everybody is, you know, everybody becomes Pope, everybody becomes teacher of the faith, everybody becomes spiritual director. And so on a particular post about the spiritual life or about prayer, you know, the, there can be multiple comments, advice, counsel that is put up. And so, again, if, you know, if we're turning to social media for spiritual guidance and, uh, you know, there, there can be certain dangers in that. And even here with what we do in these groups, you know, there has to be. Uh, a measure of practice and engaging, again, our own spiritual elder that brings about experiential knowledge. We don't want this, in other words, simply to be uh, a vehicle of satisfying curiosity about the writings of the fathers or about the spiritual life where we are filling our minds with information. This Abba said this, this saint said this about the spiritual life so that when we talk to other, others about you know, the spiritual life that we can bring these things up uh, outside of this lived experience and the fruits that the fathers have spoken about here, the fruits of the spirit 
And outside of repentance and humility, it has very little meaning. Uh, if you remember, I mentioned uh, Seraphim Rose, an Orthodox uh, priest saying that we become dilettantes, you know, those who desire, uh, you know, to be known for having, you know, this specific knowledge in a particular area. And so our drive to read either the fathers or any spiritual writer can be based upon that rather than the desire for God and the desire to live a God-pleasing life. So, do not reveal the thoughts to everyone so as not to be a scandal to, to your fathers and so that the grace of God might cover you. So, not to be a stumbling block, as it were, to your fathers. That if, say, if we're running around talking about our spiritual life, we're talking about what our spiritual father has told us, you know, what is meant to be between two individuals, you know, rises out of the kind of intimacy of that uh, uh, set of circumstances of spiritual direction, then it becomes a stumbling block to our spiritual father, a scandal in that sense of the word, uh, uh, in terms of his being able to give us solid counsel and guidance. If we're constantly in this state of receptivity, or if we're laying out before others and allowing them to scrutinize the counsel that we are being given, then we are placing an obstacle before our spiritual elder uh, and the counsel that he gives in, in that, that it might be fruitful for us. And so uh, again, we don't want to talk about these things freely uh, so as not to diminish the counsel that is given and so that the grace of God might cover you. And so if we are revealing these things uh, Again, simply to be able to talk about them with others or as a kind of curiosity or even to make ourselves be seen in a certain light by others. Well, my spiritual elder told me this, then in some ways we are being overtaken by pride and then it prevents the grace of God from covering us, as, as the writer tells us here, from protecting us uh, from perhaps even the very temptations that we are struggling with. So it's a subtle little bit of counsel, but I, I think an extraordinary one. This constant pulling us back uh, to being much more guarded about what is within our hearts and helping us to understand that we can actually make things uh, more difficult for our spiritual elder. We can muddy the waters and we can also darken our understanding of what the counsel given is meant to do for us. We prevent ourselves from seeing and embracing it. Okay. Any thoughts or comments before we move on? Okay. From Abba Cassian, St. John Cassian. Well, once visiting the fa Holy Fathers who lived in Skidus, we went also to Abba Moses, a man lofty in virtue and wise in the things of God. When we arrived at his cell and after certain spiritually beneficial discussions, we asked him as well about the confession of thoughts, how this should be done. Many brothers, we told him, from shame and a wrong understanding of piety, do not confess their thoughts. And this because many confessors, after hearing the thoughts of the brothers, not only fail to treat them, 
but so criticized them that they caused the brothers to despair. We know of one such case ourselves, which occurred in the area of Syria. We, I think in one of the groups last week, we talked a little bit about this, that uh, a person who's in the position of offering spiritual counsel or formation you know, has a great responsibility. And sometimes within the past, you know, this idea of fostering humility in the minds and the hearts of those in one's care uh, was used as an excuse to humiliate, to beat them down, and to uh, infantilize individuals. And so uh, this is the brothers here are sort of hinting at this, that when they go to and reveal these thoughts, or have in the past, that they uh, not only are failed to be treated, but they're criticized in, in a sense that they fall into despair. And, uh, and so, you know, whole communities can take a, on a spirit uh, of this kind of uh, behavior where uh, fear is sort of what guides the community you know, fear of a superior or fear of a novice master. And the rather than this love and trust that emerges over the course of time that allows then for one to freely speak of what they're struggling with, knowing that it's going to be treated tenderly and the council is going to be uh, gentle. And, uh, and so, you know, certainly I've talked to many people over time that have had this experience within the church where, where they were criticized or where they were even yelled at uh, by priests within the confessional and how destructive that can be. You know, it's one thing in the pulpit, I think, to be clear, uh, you know, in our preaching. It's, you know, it's always you have the stern ascetic in the pulpit and the gentle uh, uh, soul within the confessional, as it were especially within the confessional, uh, because I think we process what's being told. You know, one can be exhortative, but I think when a person is being ever so vulnerable and confessing their sins, that they are to be met with this kind of gentleness and not uh, generalizing what they are struggling with, but to, to really understand what is going on with them and to treat their, their, each person as a mystery in and of themselves not to group them in with a whole host of others. Well, if you do this, you're going to hell, you know, and throw them into despair. You know, we don't know the deepest mystery of other individuals, what the, the, they've gone through in their life, the trauma that they've experienced. Perhaps they've come under, you know, a kind of addictive and habitual behaviors from a very early age. And so the struggle to work their way out of it it can be a long and painful one. And so a priest has to engage the person who's right before them and with this kind of tenderness and patience in order to understand who they are. And so the elder says, in this case, a brother confessed, or let me see, they might still be speaking to the elder here. They are, I'm sorry. In this case, a brother confessed his thoughts to one of the fathers there and with complete openness and sincerity. He bared his heart without shame in order to reveal his hidden thoughts to the elder. The elder, when he heard these thoughts, 
started to become indignant and to speak against the brother, condemning him for his obscene thoughts. As soon as the elder's behavior became known, others were ashamed to confess their thoughts to the elders. So this didn't simply affect this one monk who was treated so poorly, that it broke down trust among the other brothers as well and their capacity to trust the elders as a whole that, to reveal their thoughts to them. So if you have one priest that is harsh in this way, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not as though it just affects the individual. You know, it can affect a whole community and break down this trust in this most important relationship in the spiritual life. Uh, Tyler Wilson says, some priests are not psychologists, nor should pre pretend to be in the confessional. That's right. I mean, but they have to be astute enough to be able to hear in what is being said to them something of a deeper struggle. And at least to have the awareness that there might be something deeper going on there, uh, perhaps to, to be able to ask a question that brings some clarity in order that they might offer some good counsel, not to dig uh, unnecessarily, but to, to, to really be able to help the other. And so you're right, they're not to be psychologists in the sense that uh, we see within the secular world, you know, those who, are engaging in kind of clinical work, but, but they are to be psychologists in the true sense of the word, that they have an experiential knowledge of the soul, of the whole person, the whole individual, and having engaged in this work themselves. And so develop this capacity over the course of time to be able to pick up the subtleties in the things that people are telling them. And if they aren't striving to do that, if they aren't striving to do that in their own life, and if they don't seek to do that in the confessional with others, then they're not going to be, they're not going to be able to offer much in the way of counsel. Now we can trust that certainly the grace of the sacrament itself makes up for what is lacking. But I think priests should be counsel, should be taught to be uh, at least attentive. And, uh, you know, to the, the psychological health of those in their care, because it is important. I mean, we don't separate those things within the human person, the emotional life and the spiritual life. They're intimately tied together. And so to be, to have no sense of an interior life or to have no interior life oneself on an emotional level, you're not going to be much help to those who come to you. And, and quite possibly be very destructive. Angela Finnegan. You have to unmute. You have to unmute. <laughs> there you go. Yes, this is reminding me of a situation that happened to me where I got yelled at in um, a Marian shrine in Ireland mm -hmm. uh, by a priest who had flown in from Sri Lanka and um, he yelled at me in a way that shocked me. Um, and um, I, I, it took me a long, long time to come to the point of accepting that. And the reason I was able to accept it was knowing that, you know, the Lord's providence 
and and how God permits things to happen to us that aren't right. You know, they maybe they're not the best thing, but the Lord permits it, and it 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 eventually helped me to be a little more humble. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, but it took a long time. Right. I just thought I'd mention that. Right. And that's, you know, I, I'm glad you did, because uh, it does speak to us of the providence of God, that despite, you know, the weakness of those who are to be servants of others, that God is not inhibited by that. And so can bring a person to healing, both through the grace of the sacrament itself, but over simply within their spiritual life that he can bring them along in his providence, along a path that brings them to healing and even to a deeper uh, sense of, of repentance, uh, despite the wounds that, that they've experienced through encounters like you, you described. But I think what we find in the fathers is this constant refrain that it is love and it is humility and gentleness that is something that guides people in the best way, that fear, power, control are the ways of the world, that we aren't to, and we'll come across this line a little further, quoted from the scripture about not uh, quenching the, the wick or breaking the reed, that there's a kind of tenderness to the soul. And so you don't want to snuff the, the small flame of desire that might be burning there for God uh, by a harshness, nor do you want to break, you know, push a person to a point where you break their resolve through this harshness. You have, you know, at times you might need to push a person in order to stretch them in the spiritual life, but that, that has to be done with the greatest gentleness and care so that their resolve does not break. And in the, this example that we, we just looked at, I think this is what we, we see happen, that the whole group of them falls into despair at, at being able to reveal their thoughts freely to others because of this one who had an experience, like you described, of, of this harshness that then lasts even for years. And so I think when people hear that story, these stories, it can create a kind of hesitancy, even if it's not on a fully conscious level, a hesitancy within us when we enter into the confessional about how freely we articulate things and how clearly we articulate these things, because we feel that we're going to be shamed because of them. And this can be developed even, I think, early on in our own childhood. You know, if we grew up in a, a shaming environment, and uh, where there was a kind of hypercriticalism, then you know a lot of that can be projected onto our relationship with God and make it fearful for us to approach Him with this kind of vulnerability. And so, you know, the priest's responsibility, I think, is to help build that trust in God, uh, trust in His mercy and His desire to bring us to, to healing. And so a lot of work, you know, as, as a priest over the years has been undoing or helping a person get to a point, you know, the, because often they'll have very deep faith, but the wounds are so deep, helping them get to the point where they do not have to fear in approaching God. And, uh, 
and sometimes the damage that has been done is so, so deep that it can take years for that to happen. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Any other comments or thoughts? Okay. So Abba Moses answers us. My children, it is indeed good not to hide our thoughts from the fathers, but freely and openly to confess them. Let us not follow our own judgment, but let us submit ourselves unhesitatingly to their testing. However, we must not entrust the hidden things of our hearts to just anyone, but to spiritual elders who have discernment and to those whose worthiness many have testified, and not just by the number of years they have in it, they have number, not just by the number of years they have had gray hair. For many attending only to age and external appearances have entrusted the thoughts to inexperienced, undiscerning men, and in this way have fallen into despair on account of the elders inexperience. So, you know, I think what we find in the Eastern Fathers, uh, you know, I brought home again and again is the centrality of this of the ascetical life, this experiential knowledge of engaging in the spiritual warfare, that we don't live out the spiritual life in our minds alone in our thoughts, but it is through exercising our faith by engaging in the life of prayer and engaging in the ascetical life as a whole that one gains understanding of what is going on within our own minds and our hearts. And so we would want to seek out one who others have told us have this, has this kind of experiential knowledge, one who's fought the good fight of faith, one who is engaged in the spiritual battle for many years. And, you know, the uh, danger is, again, the outward appearance you know, in terms of the words spoken or the physical appearance of age, you know, none of these things necessarily speak to experience and experiential knowledge of God. And remember, you know, that the fathers define theology as precisely that, you know, this knowledge of God that arises out of experience of him, the encounter of him through purity of heart, being drawn into contemplation, the idea of just studying theology, not tied to the spiritual life and the penitential life, the ascetical life, for them would be nonsensical. And in fact, they said it leads to demonic theology. And I think they would say the same thing about <clears throat> spiritual counsel, that one who is able to talk about these things, but has not lived them is in essence, doing the same thing, a kind of demonic spiritual direction, if you will, that, you know, if they can be deceived themselves, then they're going to be used as instruments of deception. And I think the more that we've moved away from the, the ascetical tradition of our faith, the, the more that we, that we see of this. You know, both in the schools of theology, but I think both, but also within the kind of spiritual counsel that is given. Goes on to say, there was a certain brother who was very earnest. Now he happened to be troubled by the demon of fornication. 
He went immediately to an elder and confessed to him his thoughts. This elder, however, being inexperienced, became indignant when he heard the brother's confession and called him a wretch, deeming him unworthy of the monastic habit since he had such thoughts. When the brother heard the elder's words, he despaired of his salvation and abandoning the place of his asceticism returned to the world. However, by divine providence, he encountered Abba Apollo, one of the most experienced elders. Seeing the brother so depressed, Abba Apollo asked him, my brother, what is the cause of your worry? At first, the brother, under the weight of his great sorrow, said nothing in reply. Later, however, since the elder did not cease asking him to reveal the cause of his great sorrow, the brother began to relate what had happened to him. I'm troubled, father, he said, by thoughts of fornication, and I went to confess them to a certain elder, but he told me that there was no salvation for me. So after this, I lost any hope and I'm going back to the world. Hearing this, Father Apollo began patiently to console the brother and to counsel him. Do not go into a strange land, my child, he said, and do not lose hope. For even I, despite the fact I'm old in age, am troubled by these thoughts. Do not worry, therefore, about this intense burning, which is not so much cured by human effort as by Christ's love for man. I beg you, do me this favor, grant me one, one day and turn back to your cell. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop with this paragraph, but, and, but I think it's a good place for us to, to stop by reflecting upon the, the last bit of counsel that Abba Apollo gives this young man. Do not worry about the intense burning of these thoughts and these temptations because one is cured, not so much by human effort as by Christ's love for man, that we can become overly fixated upon the particular struggle that we have in the spiritual life and have our attention focused upon it so much that we begin to identify with it. And this is what the elder sort of solidifies in this young man's mind. You are a wretch which is probably already what he was thinking in his mind. I am a wretch because I have these thoughts of fornication. And so he was solidifying exactly the wrong thing in this young monk's mind. And the, uh, Abba, this Abba Apollo was able to tell him, you know, not to worry about this. I, I struggle with these same thoughts myself, even in my old age. And in any case, you know, that the, the weight of the spiritual battle rests with God and the grace that he provides. What is most important is that re repentant spirit, our willingness to turn toward God and our struggle, that that flood of grace comes to us. It's God's desire to give it to us. And so, again, while the ascetic life is important, while our struggle is important, we don't want to lose sight of the desire of God to bring us where we need to be and to heal us. And so as we're struggling, say, if we have these burning thoughts that, uh, that are described here, and they're coming upon us constantly, day after day, our focus in a counterintuitive way should be to, to deepen our attention and focus upon Christ, to deepen our prayer, 
And it's often hard for us to do that because in our shame and embarrassment, we often will pull back from God and we'll begin to pray less and less because we feel less and less worthy of approaching him because we're struggling with something like thoughts of fornication or anger or jealousy or whatever that might be. And that becomes our focal point. And in that sense, the evil one wins the battle right there. If he can just keep our focus upon the things that we're struggling with, rather than our turning in that struggle to the one alone who can heal us and give us what we need to, to overcome the temptations. And so this is a really important line. And I would encourage, you know, not just underlining it, but memorizing it, because it's one of the most important things to remember in the spiritual battle, because so often we, we fall into despondency when we find ourselves laboring over and over again with, with the same thing or having to confess the same thing over and over again. And it can pull us to that place where we, again, identify so deeply with those spiritual struggles that we lose sight of the mercy and the gentleness of God. And this is why, again, you know, it connects us to their counsel to pray in this non-discursive fashion, you know, to use these short prayers to bring our minds and our hearts back as swiftly as we can to God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we aren't allowing ourselves to rest in the, in the particular temptation that we're fighting with, but we're moving ourselves gently and, but swiftly toward God. And, you know, so this is part of, you know, one of the gems uh, of the Father's writings and one of the, this part of their wisdom that I think is most important for us to take hold of. Ambrose wrote, yes, if he's ordained and pronounces absolution, personal qualities don't impede the sacramental grace. That's right. Uh, and so we can have trust, you know, certainly in the grace of the sacrament, despite the, the what is lacking in the confessor. Um, but getting back to this last point, what we want to trust in most of all, you know, is the grace of God working in our, in our life and not lose ourselves in, in the experience of our own poverty. I think, you know, this is why we keep the crucifixes within our church and the blessed sacrament. We see the, the depth of God's love for us, what he's willing to do on our behalf, how small and unthreatening he's willing to make himself for us in, in order to encourage us to approach him. He becomes our food. You know, ever so small and vulnerable in order that we would have no fear of being vulnerable before him. And so if we can simply keep our minds and our hearts there, the spiritual gains will be great. Any final comments? I saw a couple of hands. Carol Nypaper. My question is from section C. What about sharing what we learned in spiritual direction with one's spouse, especially concerning children? You know, I think, again, in those intimate relationships, you know, the one spouse would be one's confidant. And so certainly being able to talk 
you know, about the, the raising of one's children or especially the raising of them in the faith, that of course, you know, that would be a place that uh, would be appropriate to be, to be open. Okay. Any other thoughts? Nay, they teach you to tell your story, right? To help others heal, right? And so are you wondering about this? My priest says that's good, right? Yes. So, you know, I would look at this in a similar way as uh, going to psychotherapy. You know, it's, there's a frame there within, within which one is engaging in it for the purpose of healing. And so a clinical setting where one is talking to a therapist, you are talking about your experiences. And if it's uh, in a psychoanalytic setting, for example, it's, you know, very freely in terms of what's going on on an emotional level, even if it's sort of disconnected, but it's, you know, done within that frame over the course of time uh, for the purpose, again, of emotional healing. And with AA, I think that the setting is similar, that there is this uh, acknowledgement of the struggle openly. And it's in that open acknowledgement of it, especially among those, in a sense, those in AA, they are act like elders to each other because they know someone who's, you know, given, uh, you know, a story and not really laying it out forward because they've heard everything and they've done everything in their struggle with alcoholism. And so they have this experiential knowledge of it. And so the revelation of that story within that context can be a very healing thing. Uh, but again, it doesn't mean that in every conversation that one has with another individual that you need to tell them, I'm an alcoholic and this is what I you know, have done in my life. That, that would be, I think, would go beyond the frame that would be healing. And again, it would make, there's a danger there. And sometimes I have run into this with those who've been in AA for many years that they've talked about it so often that it does slip over into the public realm and they begin to identify with being an alcoholic so much that it becomes part of their identity. I am an alcoholic. And I know that's part of the processes of healing for them within AA, but they're more than an alcoholic. And I think the one saving grace there is that they do acknowledge this higher power within AA, they acknowledge that they are not able to bring about their healing on their own and whatever that might be for the individual. But uh, it's not the same thing as spiritual direction. And sometimes I think it can depend upon the group of AA and how long one's been in it and the discretion of those who are in it as well. Okay. All right, we're a little over time. So when we when we stop there for day, and uh, I'm sorry, there Wayne, uh, I think you had, did you have a question? Okay, so we'll stop there today, and we'll pick up next time. This this is a very important uh, hypothesis, I think, in terms of our moving forward in the in the spiritual life, and having the kind of discernment that we want for ourselves, but also in those that we seek counsel from. Okay.
don't we close as always with the our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen, amen. our father our who father, art in heaven, in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come, kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. With your God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.